today, why philosophy may not be quite as dangerous as some people think, and whether Socrates' Jiminy Cricket was really what got him into trouble with the law. This is Good in Theory. I'm Cliff Mark. Welcome to part three of our series on Plato's Apology. Last episode, we finished covering the text of the Apology, which is the defense speech of a man who feels he's been unjustly silenced. And today, we're going to start looking at the other side. We're going to look at the reasons people have for wanting to silence each other, and the reasons the Athenians might have had for wanting to silence Socrates specifically. I'm going to look at two issues. One is the idea that Socrates was just impious, that what he was saying was an affront to Athenian religion, and that outraged people, and that's why he was being punished. And the second reason that people might have had for wanting to silence Socrates is a little bit more philosophical. Here, the reason is that philosophy itself, it's not that it's impious, it's that it undermines all social values. Philosophy asks too many questions, and those questions lead to skepticism. And skepticism leads to a dangerous kind of moral anarchy that makes good politics impossible. I'm going to explain how these arguments work, both in Socrates' case and when I see them come up today. But I will tell you now that I don't think either of these arguments provide the strongest possible justification for censoring people. And I don't think either of them was the main reason that Socrates was convicted. But they did play a role, and you will see these arguments cropping up today, so they are worth a look. The official charge against Socrates was for impiety and corrupting the youth. So we really need to spend a little bit of time talking about impiety as a reason to shut people up in general, and as a reason to shut Socrates up in particular. Impiety... That's basically when you fail to show the proper respect or reverence for a sacred object, usually a god. And if you hold anything sacred at all in your life, and you've encountered someone who is really disrespecting it, then you probably know that wanting them to stop doing that is a pretty natural reaction. That said, in modern secular countries, like in Canada where I live, Religious freedom is really important, and we have no official laws against impiety. And even the idea of censoring people for this kind of thing is not very popular. So when I say that Socrates was executed for impiety, that can make Athens sound like an old-fashioned, intolerant, religiously fanatical kind of place. And some people might even think that we, modern secular people, have gotten past getting mad about this kind of thing. Well, I don't think we completely have. Even if a lot of countries don't have official impiety laws on the books, I think that the angry feeling that people get when their sense of what's sacred is violated, I think that's very much alive. If you say something really nasty about Christianity or Islam or Judaism or whatever, there's a very good chance that some group of people is going to be offended. They may not want to execute you over it, but you shouldn't be surprised if they were upset and they want you to stop because this is a normal response to the violation of something that's sacred. And what's more, this feeling of the sacred 
This feeling of piety and the outrage about when it's violated is not confined to religion or to gods. A lot of people hold the nation in reverence, and they get upset if you burn or desecrate the flag. Some people get really mad about mom jokes. And there's another kind of common piety that I actually enjoy seeing violated. And that is the piety that some people have towards popular culture. People genuinely seem to revere some cultural objects, whether it's music or movies or novels, and they do not like when other people start messing with them. Not the rings, Randall. Say what you will about Jesus, but leave the rings out of this. There are intellectual properties that are held to be so sacred that fans will even turn in anger on creators if they violate some important dogma like Dumbledore is straight or Palpatine is dead or just because they feel that Jamie Dornan is hashtag not my Christian. Which is all to say that we modern secular people still know how to feel outraged piety. But as I said, in liberal countries, the idea of having explicit piety laws, of using the power of the state to stop impious behavior, is still very unpopular. And one of the big reasons for this is diversity. Most people don't share the same opinion of what's sacred or impious. So it'd be kind of tricky to just choose one idea of piety, whether it's Catholicism or Islam or ancient Greek paganism, and then impose it on other people. If you're doing something obviously impious, say, drawing offensive cartoons of Muhammad or dropping a crucifix into a jar of piss and calling it art or breaking the dicks off some statues of Hermes, at best, you're only going to piss off a minority of Canadians, for example, and you're not going to get in trouble with the law. But Athens was different. They did have impiety laws on the books, and they had prosecuted people for it before Socrates. So does this mean that they were a bunch of intolerant religious fanatics punishing Socrates for offending the gods? Well, I'll start by saying that Socrates did have some fairly impious beliefs. There's been a lot of scholarship on whether there's any substance to this charge of impiety. And Socrates had certain beliefs that a lot of scholars point to as being ones that would be in violation of Athenian religion, and probably the things that Melodus was talking about when he accused him of impiety. For example, Socrates had this kind of Jiminy Cricket voice in his head that would talk to him and stop him from doing bad things. He called this his daimon, D-A-E-M-O-N. And that is probably, scholars think, what Melodus was talking about when he accused Socrates of introducing new spiritual things into Athens. And another one of his irreligious beliefs, which I find kind of funny, is that Socrates, he made certain general assumptions about the gods. When he would argue and talk about the gods in Greece, he would argue from the premise that they were rational and just and nice, that they all got along with each other. So if an act was just, then the gods would like it. And if the gods did something, it was rational and for the good. And this may sound like a normal perspective on religion if you've lived under 2,000 years of Christianity, for example. But if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that those Greek gods are not nice guys. They are irrational, emotional, 
they are constantly tormenting each other and humans. So when you read around the scholarship on Socrates' impiety, one of the big pieces of evidence was that Socrates thought the gods were too nice. So yes, Socrates certainly did have some heterodox religious opinions. But I do not think that this alone is why he got prosecuted. I don't even think it's the main reason. Because Athens was actually a pretty liberal place, and they were not super strict about religion. There was no central church enforcing a common orthodoxy. People did get in trouble for impiety sometimes, but historians have gone through the records, and when you get in trouble for impiety, when you get charged with that, it's because you did something pretty bad. You were performing mock religious ceremonies, or you actually robbed a temple, or you committed an irreligious act with an olive tree. It was never just for voicing some weird beliefs. And anyway, if Socrates' weird beliefs were really so bad, why didn't the Athenians go after him earlier? Socrates had been at it for over 40 years by then. They knew what he was up to. So if Athens was that uptight about piety, they probably would have got to him earlier. In summary, a sense of outrage piety is a very common psychological reason for people to want other people to shut up. But nowadays, the argument's not going to be very useful if you want to justify actually shutting someone up because we live in diverse societies with freedom of religion and it's just out of style to appeal to piety to justify censoring people. And even in Athens, where impiety was considered a fair reason to punish someone, Socrates' weird religious beliefs probably were not bad enough to merit the kind of trouble that he got in. So if impiety alone isn't a good enough reason to silence Socrates, what else could we use? Let's say you're upset by what someone's saying, you want them to shut up, but you know you can't appeal to piety, what do you do? Well, one strategy is to use this next argument, which I call the slippery slope to skepticism. The next argument that I want to consider is a kind of secular rethinking of the argument from impiety. And that makes it easier to use if appealing directly to a particular religion would be awkward. And here, the argument isn't so much that what the person said is bad because it offended a certain religion. It's that philosophy in general, aka asking too many questions, is dangerous to stable politics because it causes skepticism about shared social values, and those are essential to an orderly society. So let's start with the premise that all societies need to share some kind of basic values and principles. There needs to be some kind of moral consensus that tells people how to treat each other. It doesn't need to be tied to any particular religion. It may be, but it doesn't have to be. People just need to agree on the basics of what's good and bad and how we're supposed to treat each other. And the problem with philosophy is that it questions these things. It shows their rational weaknesses and it weakens our belief in them. And it's a slippery slope because even if philosophy starts out by just questioning a few things, soon it winds up questioning everything. That's just what it does. 
And all this leads to breaking down some of our beliefs, and that leads to relativism, and that leads to jazz music and dogs and cats living together, and eventually total moral anarchy. Because if we don't share values, if we don't share some ethical principles, then we have nothing to appeal to to control each other's behavior. The only levers we have over each other are bribes and threats. So we need to control philosophy before it turns us all into the nihilists from Lebowski. And to show how this argument might work in practice, I've just imagined a made-up Athenian citizen, who I named Popsicles, and I've made up a speech that he might use to convince his fellow Athenians why Socrates needs to be stopped. I'm not quoting any text here. I'm not citing any historical facts. This is just to help to show how the argument might sound from someone who believed in it. And to give you a short break from my voice, actor and friend of the pod, Zachary Amsleg, is going to do the speech for you. Fellow Athenians, your most cherished values are under attack. Every society has shared values. That's what holds them together. Without any shared values, all that's left is selfishness. Now, I'm not saying we have to agree on every little detail, but we need to share some basic fundamentals. Everyone's got to know that it's wrong to kill, to lie, or to wear clothes to the gym. Otherwise, it's just a war of all against all. And how do we get those values? From our parents, the laws, tradition, authority figures, the culture, and so on. It's the job of the entire city to instill these values in every citizen. The one place we do not get these values from is philosophy. Because all philosophy does is criticize. It nitpicks and questions and breaks down our beliefs and doesn't leave anything in their place. Look at Socrates. This is a man who criticizes every basic assumption, every convention, every principle that we've got. He's the ultimate contrarian. He doesn't even trust the moral authorities that we're supposed to look to for guidance. The poets, politicians, priests, parents. Socrates doesn't leave anyone unquestioned. This is a man who, if you tell him it's wrong to kill your dad and sleep with your sister, he'll ask you why it's wrong, and then he'll argue the other side. He'll question you till you don't have any more answers. He can't help it. This is what philosophy does. It breaks down all your ideas of right and wrong, but doesn't put anything back in their place. You know how I know? Look at Socrates. He's the best philosopher we've got, and he spent his whole life thinking about ethics. And what did he come up with? Nothing. Literally, the only thing he's sure of is that he knows nothing. Is this the type of person you want mentoring your children? We've spent a long time instilling these values of Athenian society into our kids, and Socrates is pulling it apart. You can already see it happening. You've heard your sons and other young men imitating Socrates spouting his dangerous ideas and mouthing off to the people they should be respecting. How far can we go down this road? What happens when our kids don't believe in anything anymore? 
Now, Socrates may look like a cute old man to you, but he's actually tearing a gaping hole into the moral fabric of society, and it's all going to unravel. We need to stop Socrates to save Athenian values. And that is how you would use the skepticism argument against Socrates. Even though I made this speech up and I wrote it in modern language, it's not totally anachronistic. People have been worrying about skepticism basically since they had values and questions. And this includes in ancient Athens. People did complain about this. Even Socrates himself in Plato's Republic makes an argument like this. He says that in the ideal city, you wouldn't let young men study philosophy because they wind up believing in nothing. And similar arguments have been made like this from time to time against philosophy or science, anything that was asking too many questions and people thought might undermine the moral foundations of society. In fact, in philosophy, this is a classic conservative move. It's to say that too much reason in philosophy is dangerous because human reason is weak, And the reason we have traditions is because we've learned things over many generations and encoded it into the culture. So when we leave tradition to follow our reason, we should be very careful. And you still see something like this argument today in casual context. For example, say someone doesn't like same-sex marriage, but they don't have an argument specifically against it, and they don't want to sound homophobic, so they say... Okay, same-sex marriage isn't so bad, but if we allow this, what's next? Are we going to let Megan marry her dog? Or iPhone marries Roomba? See, this kind of argument is a slippery slope to skepticism. It's the idea that questioning one moral assumption, that marriage is between a man and a woman, will eventually undermine all the moral beliefs in that area. And there's one more area where this argument comes up pretty regularly that I want to talk about. And that's in the study of political theory. Now, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but there are some political theory professors who like to tell their students that philosophy is dangerous, that Athens may actually have been onto something when they persecuted Socrates. And the reason for that is because critical philosophy, this kind of constant questioning, is a solvent that dissolves traditional values and common opinions. And this is dangerous to the individuals who study philosophy because our whole set of moral beliefs are just based on opinions, things we'd learned as kids. And so when you attack that, you're left with nothing. You're left with none of these crutches of tradition and moral opinion. You have to figure out what's right and wrong by the light of your own reason. And not everyone is up to this. So the people I'm talking about, they kind of romanticize philosophers as these great minds who alone can survive this encounter with skepticism. But because the people I'm talking about are professors of political philosophy, they're most worried about the danger that philosophy poses to politics. Good politics governs by values. We want to appeal to people's values to get them to do what we want them to do, to create social order. But if you trash all the values that we share... The only thing that politics will have left to use to govern is force. It can easily become this nihilistic war of all against all. And this argument, it keeps coming back because honestly it has some things going for it. 
I can completely understand the motivation behind the arguments against skepticism. Because the whole point of having values in traditions is that we value them. So it's not surprising that if you come along philosophically questioning all of them, people are going to make up arguments to defend the values and traditions that are under attack. Some things are worth believing in, so questioning them can be a problem. In the abstract, the argument from skepticism makes sense. The premises seem true to me. It does seem right that societies need some level of ethical consensus in order to operate nicely. And it is definitely 100% true that philosophy in general, and Socrates in particular, questions the moral assumptions of society. Socrates didn't just have weird religious opinions. He was questioning everything. He questioned the political values of democracy. He undermined respect for moral authorities. Anything. And it's true that people would walk away from conversations with Socrates, scratching their heads and unable to sufficiently defend the opinions that they've held their whole lives. But the conclusion that confusing people with philosophy then leads to a general skepticism and moral anarchy, I don't think that's true. And I definitely don't think that could justify censoring an individual today or censoring Socrates in Athens. Let's start with the idea that some academics have that philosophy is this dangerous discipline because it explodes our traditional beliefs and sends our little moral compasses spinning. I get why people say this. I get why you might want to sex up your academic discipline a bit. But I'll tell you a little bit about my personal experience with philosophy and why it doesn't feel that dangerous to me. I've been in a lot of philosophy and political theory classes And in my experience, you can spend pretty much all day questioning the most fundamental moral assumptions of society without ever making society noticeably less stable, and usually still finishing by acting according to all the beliefs you had before you started questioning them. I don't know if you have ever been in a university ethics class, but I have. I've taught them, and I'll tell you, that ethics professors the world over are doing just what Socrates did. They're questioning and attacking the fundamental moral beliefs that students have, right down to something basic like the idea that it's wrong to kill someone. This is how a typical ethics class in a university philosophy department might go. Teacher walks in and says, so is it okay to kill people? Class says, no, of course not. And that's when the teacher starts the process of trying to prove them wrong. They say, okay, wrong to kill people, but can we run them over with a trolley? Can we push them off a bridge? What if they're fat? What if someone is sleeping in the hospital? Can you take out all of their organs if you'd save five other people by transplanting them? What if you wake up and someone has surgically attached a talented violinist to you while you were sleeping? Can you detach them even if they'll die? And just so you know, I didn't make up these questions. These are all true philosophical hits that professors around the world discuss with their students and with each other. But my point isn't just that philosophers talk about weird and contrived examples. It's that the premise that philosophy questions moral beliefs is true. That's philosophy's job, especially ethics. It takes basic beliefs, it gets weird with them, turns them upside down, shows them to be contradictory, 
and generally exposes their weaknesses. And philosophy teachers, they're usually pretty good at what they do, and philosophy students are just starting, so if you're a student and you walk into class with any firmly held moral beliefs, you're probably going to be shown how weak they really are. So if you think that questioning and doubting really does cause a kind of moral breakdown, then you would expect philosophy students as a group to be some kind of revolutionary cadre of Johnson-chopping nihilists. But they aren't. My fellow philosophy students from undergrad, as far as I know, none of them went on to become trolley killers or anarchists. Most of them just went to law school and became upstanding upholders of the moral status quo. Philosophers have been discussing all of these questions. They've been pulling apart fundamental moral assumptions for generations. And society has not fallen apart. Or at least, if society has fallen apart, it wasn't philosophy's fault. It just seems to me that stable and orderly politics can coexist peacefully with a very high level of critical philosophical questioning. And I think that most of the Athenians on Socrates' jury would have felt the same way. And even if some of them were extra nervous and worried about philosophy causing skepticism, I don't think that this caused enough worry to enough of them to the point where they would actually kill Socrates. And Socrates has a pretty good argument that this is the case, right? In his defense speech, he points out that Athens was full of sophists. They were teachers of rhetoric who were explicitly relativist. They were teaching people to make weaker arguments seem stronger. So if anyone was going to cause skepticism, it was these guys. But they weren't being arrested. They were doing pretty good business in Athens. So if the Athenians really were that worried about skepticism, there's no reason they would have centered out Socrates. They would have had to do a general purge of all the intellectuals in the city. And also, if the questioning was such a problem, why did they wait till Socrates was 70 to come after him? And this, I think, illustrates the big problem with the argument against skepticism, which is that it's too general. It proves too much. So I think... People turn to this argument, they turn to the slippery slope to skepticism, or they appeal to tradition when they're worried about some specific idea or value that's being undermined. They're actually worried about some specific form of speech, but they can't defend censoring it on its own terms. So they attack the process of questioning things in general, like the example I used of same-sex marriage. Most people are just worried about same-sex marriage. They're not worried about Megan marrying her dog. But they don't have an argument against it, so they use the appeal to skepticism. But if your argument is just that questioning will destroy society, this proves way too much. The argument is too general. When you want to shut someone up, you want to shut up a specific person or a group of people, or you want to censor a set of arguments or propositions. Nobody really wants to shut down questions in general. But if your argument is just that philosophy ruins society, then you can't just take out Socrates. You've got to take out all the sophists and other philosophers as well. And if you try using that argument today, and people do try to use this argument today, but if you use it today and you follow it to the obvious conclusion, you have to put a stop to way more speech than most people would seriously contemplate. 
So if you want to justify silencing a specific person or a specific set of topics, you want to find an argument that's precise enough to separate the bad stuff that you hate from the other stuff that you want to keep. That means if you're an Athenian and you want to stop Socrates, you don't need a general argument against philosophy. You'd be much better off with an argument about why Socrates specifically, not every sophist, needs to be stopped now in 399 BCE. I wanted to talk about impiety and skepticism today as reasons for silencing people, both because the arguments come up when people are discussing the trial of Socrates and because they still come up when people are trying to censor each other today. Still, I don't think they're the most common or the most powerful arguments for silencing people. When I look around me, online, on TV, in real life, and I think of all the arguments I see over censorship and free speech and so on, it's not usually about piety or skepticism at the bottom of it. In my experience, it's usually about, in some broad sense of the word, politics. And I think the same is true in Socrates' case. There was a lot going on politically in Athens at the time that can help us understand why Socrates got into the kind of trouble he got into when he got into it. And that's what I'm going to be talking about next episode. I'm going to fill in some of the political context. I'm going to explain why some Athenians had reason to believe that Socrates was a dangerous political enemy. And I'm going to explain why Socrates saw politics as a kind of brain disease that would make people petty and paranoid and very dangerous. Thanks to Clayton Tapp and David Zikovitz for music, Marika Bouchier for pod art, and to Sepeda for general pod-based assistance. Also, thank you to special guest Zachary Amzaleg for being a great popsicles. And I'd also like to give a special shout-out to our first Patreon sponsor. Elliot Chambers, thank you for your donation. And to everyone else, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the pod, please tell someone about it. I've already told everyone that I know, and like COVID-19, this podcast will be nothing without community transmission. So please, help spread it around. And now for our theory fact. I know I dropped a lot of kind of obscure references this time about Palpatine and Piscrist and olive trees and violinists, and I can't explain them all, but I can't not explain the statues of Hermes. In ancient Athens, they had these statues which were called Herms, and their head was a head of Hermes, and below that it was just a square pillar. Except for at the middle, the square pillar had a dick and balls and pubes. And just to get your art history straight, don't picture Michelangelo's David. Picture a raging, upwardly curved banana boner that you could hang a garland from. And the Herms were placed all over Athens, at crossroads, at the entrances to temples and to houses. And the idea was that they were these kind of religious lucky charms that would bless the comings and goings of travelers. And the travelers would anoint the Herms with oil and leave them garlands. And then, one time, in Athens, 
right before a giant military expedition to Sicily, some person or group of people went around at night vandalizing the Herms. And hearing that someone snuck out at night and broke the dicks off a bunch of public statues, I would not blame you for imagining that it was just a bunch of drunk teenagers in high spirits. But Athens freaked out. This was considered a very serious act of sacrilege, and they generated these theories that they were saboteurs come from their enemy's territory to get them in the gods' bad books before the big fight. They thought it was a bad omen. They set up a massive state investigation for this and for any other act of impiety so they could purge the religious pollution that this caused. The Athenians were so worried about this that they nearly canceled the expedition because they thought it would be cursed. The mutilation of the Herms was one of the big mysteries of Athens, and they were still investigating it and taking testimony 15 years later. And to this day, nobody knows for sure who did it. But after centuries of painstaking research, historians and classicists have come to a cautious consensus that the preponderance of evidence and an analysis of the social customs and mores of the time suggest that probably it was a bunch of drunk teenage boys in high spirits. Thanks for listening.